0: for your word this morning. Um, As you told the disciples, um, you were delivered into the hands of men, and if you were not, Lord, there would be no hope for salvation for us. You were delivered on our behalf, uh, died for our sins, uh, the perfect lamb, the atoning sacrifice. I pray that we would know what this means, that you'd give us ears to hear this, this morning and hearts to receive your word. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. things taking place in this text this morning. Uh, So many indeed that I won't be able to get to each and every one of them. We would be lost in so many rabbit trails at different points in time, but I do want to track what I hope to be the big picture of the text or perhaps address the most pressing question that the text presents to us. There is significantly some movement here that I do want to note for you from the transfiguration perspective. We move into this Demonic episode. There's lots to be told there about the significance of how these stories pair together. If we look at Mark and Matthew as well as Luke, each one puts these texts side by side. It's, yes, we could say, well, that's simply chronological, right? So this episode into this episode, but it is more than that. And we have the benefit of seeing that as they structure their gospel narratives. They're also, even by the structuring of the narratives, telling us theological truth. They're trying to drive us to ask the right questions, notice the right movements, and recognize how the scenes are changing and promoting questions and giving answers. So the point is, this episode isn't simply the next random event that occurred in chronology of events. But rather, what we're recognizing is these two stories, as Mark testifies, Matthew testifies, and Luke testifies, these stories belong together. The transfiguration purposely flows into the story of the demon-possessed young man. So as we look at these two texts, we're going to kind of build a bridge between them because there is a bridge there to be built. Again, I'm pressing... Maybe the original audience right then and there, those who were on that hillside, maybe didn't, right, make the right connections between transfiguration of what just transpired and now this demon-possessed episode. But we as those who' possessed these texts, have the advantage of being able to see exactly how these two stories or episodes belong together significantly and theologically. As we come to our text then this morning, there are a couple of contrasts that I want to use as the way we work through the text. The first of our two contrasts, as we look at the text of transfiguration, and now we're moving into another episode of the demon-possessed boy, the very first of our two contrasts that help us understand the text is number one, a contrast of geography. There is a contrast for you and I that is meant to be noticed, read, and understood, and that is a contrast of the geography. Notice in verse 37 how it gets started. Again, these stories belong together, and we're tracking to exactly see how. Verse 37, on the next day, when they had come down from the mountain. Now, Notice right away the the, the flow or movement of the text is leaving what is considered by everybody to be a mountaintop experience. Right? So so now, now we're looking at that, that would be the quintessential mountaintop experience. Whether we're joining back with Moses, back when at Sinai, he's receiving the commandments of the Lord and his show me your glory, and that mountaintop experience, and now as we would just simply colloquially say, wow, that's like a mountaintop experience, or we come here with Christ and the transfiguration and Peter, James, and John, and they had what we would say by all accounts absolutely is a mountaintop experience. So now there is movement in the text away from this mountaintop and all that that implies, of which we dealt with last week, the beauty of this heavenly light inexpressibly flowing and emanating from our Lord, and Peter, James, and John seeing Moses and Elijah and hearing the voice of God, what was the summary there of that mountaintop experience, or in other words, what does the mountaintop experience, um, what is at its center, what was it all about, And certainly, as Peter, James, and John would recognize, we were in the presence of God. We were there. Remember, the clouds surrounded them. They heard the voice of God on that mountaintop experience. They saw Moses and Elijah. They saw the heavenly light emanating from the Lord. This is that mountaintop. It has the import or the symbolism with it of the presence of God. That's what the mountaintop experience was about. So now we, as readers, track that summary of transfiguration, and we see the presence of God is what the beauty of the transfiguration was about. The future coming of the glory of Christ to rule and to reign. They heard and were in the presence of God. Now, significantly so, a contrast is at work geographically. They're coming down from that mountaintop, and in more ways than just geography, or just because that was the only place to go, we're already up here, the only way to go is down. There's more to it than that. The movement of the text is also, now that you get down into what would be considered now, more of the plains, or might we say, the valley, there is symbolism here as well, in the movement of the passage. For what do they find down in the valley? moving away from the presence of God and entering into the place of the crowd. What do they find when they come down from this mountaintop experience, but they find demons ruining lives? They find down here in the valley place, in the commonplace, they find people suffering, many in the crowds who wanted healing and help, who sought after Jesus for relief of their strife and their hardship. They find in this place as they leave this mountaintop and they enter into the place of a valley, they find it culminating in the Son of Man being delivered over into the hands of sinful men. These two geographical markers stand in great contrast to one another. It's not simply they found a path and they went down it, And this is what occurred. But the structure of the narratives are working together to instruct the same. There is something significant about the mountain. And there is something significant when you come down from it. One is encapsulated with the glory of God in the presence of God. And the other is a place where demons are ruining lives. People are broken and burdened. And in fact, down here, away from that experience... The Son of Man will be handed over into the hands of sinful men. That is was read for you just earlier, kind of in that culminating statement of verse 44. As Jesus says in this experience, again, down and away from the mountaintop, he says to them, let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. That will be, indeed, the darkest day in the valley. The second contrast that I want you to see that goes beyond the geography of the text that is helping you as a reader to be moved by these two different spheres, the mountaintop and life in the valley. And in that life in the valley experience or the life of the ordinary, there are two additional contrasts within there. And the contrast is simply this the contrast of human activity in the ordinary life. There's another contrast. You're you're supposed to read these two things. There's, There's a sphere here, and there's a sphere here. This sphere stands for this, and this sphere stands for that. And inside this sphere down here, life in the valley, I see human beings. And in this episode of Real Lives, I see two different responses to life in the valley we'll see on the one hand the activity or the response of the father of the demon-possessed boy. He comes to stand in center of the narrative to help us see how we're supposed to respond to life lived in the valley. Or as we might say, life lived in the ordinary. the place of hardship, sin, entanglement, demons ruining lives, humans experience suffering expectations never being met quite exactly how we might think being human how are we to live and the father will come to the fore and we will see how he deals with the same things that the disciples deal with he deals with the suffering of his son and he's dealing with evil that is at work The disciples are doing the same. The disciples are attempting to deal with evil as the Father is. And they also are attempting to deal with human suffering. So they both kind of will see in this valley experience. These two will stand forward and will watch them both deal with the same issues. And the Lord will rejoice over one and not over the other. Finally, when we put the entire scene together of what's taking place, I want to put forward to you one critical question that I think the text is driving us toward. So whether we kind of, now we're kind of thinking the sphere of the mountain, the sphere of the valley, and what takes place inside of both. This is the question I want to pose to you this morning as we think of sphere A and sphere B, is what I said to you before, there is a bridge between the two. Because if you're in sphere B, that is the valley, You're living life in the ordinary. You're not quite living in that sense of, you know, mountaintop experience. The question that then comes to us in this text is this How do I move out from the chaotic experience of the valley and into the inexpressible experience of the mountain? if I'm living life in the ordinary, if I'm in the place where there is hardship, turbulence, difficulty, distress, how then do I move to us as readers who have the other text? We know of the transfiguration and now we see life in the valley. The question is, how do I get from here to there? Or asked another way, How does one come to enter into the presence of God? That's the summary of the mountaintop experience. That's the question for the folk in the valley. How does one come to live and be in the presence of God? Back to that sense of the mountaintop experience. With this question in mind, then, I, I want to explore the text with you just for the next few moments. And the very first piece, we'll just walk through the text piece by piece as we explore together this one question. Again, how do I move from the chaotic experience of the valley and into the inexpressible experience of the mountain? How do I get there? And if I could make one more note before we go forward, I, I recognize I, I don't think that the folk in the crowd were wondering that question. That's not the, cro- the, the question of the crowd. That's the question of you, the reader, the advantage is you have these texts structured side by side. You see the theological story that it's trying to lead you down, to ask you to think on this. So think about that question with me as we explore these, te- these texts together piece by piece. With that question in mind, then look at verse 37 as we walk through it. Again, verse 37, on the next day, so as we're moving down and away from that transfiguration experience, you simply have Jesus, Peter, uh, James, and John together. The next day, they, that's who they were, had come down from the mountain. And as they're coming down and away from that experience, there is immediately a welcoming crowd, that is a crowd gathered to meet them. I do want to do a little bit of jumping back and forth. You don't have to turn to these texts. If, if you want to jot them down, that's fine. But I'll be jumping in and out of the text because Matthew, Mark, and Luke are all telling the same story in the same sequence. And they, each one of them adds a certain flavor or flair to them to help us understand more details. And if you put each one together, we can kind of get a fuller picture of what's exactly taking place here, so I'll, for your sake, and the issue of identity of the crowd and the scene in the valley, I want to consider Mark nine fourteen through fifteen because Mark fills out the scene at, in the approach a little bit clearer and, and a little bit fuller as to just how chaotic the scene was when uh, Jesus, um, James, uh, Peter, and John uh, arrive in the ordinary. Mark 9, 14, 15 says this, and when they came, that is the folk that I just said, Jesus and the three disciples, when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd with them and scribes arguing with them. Mark reports that then Jesus asked them, what are you arguing about? Now, so Luke just simply shortcuts it and moves us straight into the fact that there was a crowd there who came to meet them. But Mark fills in, it wasn't that smooth. There was a debate that was raging. And it was raging between the crowds, uh, the disciples, and the scribes. And as this chaotic scene is erupting, our Lord steps into it and says, what is the argument all about? What's taking place here? And that's when we move in our text to verse 38, and the Father steps forward to give a clear explanation of what exactly is taking place. Many voices, many people, many arguments, and we hear the answer being told to us by the Father. He comes forward. Now, again, a great crowd is there, noted by Luke. And behold, a single man from the crowd cried out. Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only child. And then drop down to verse 40, and you see, And I beg your disciples to cast it out. He describes the demon earlier in verse 39. But the argument ensues because of verse 40. I beg your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. So what is the debate raging in the valley in the experience of Jesus, Peter, James, and John? John. It is this chaotic and intense scene between the disciples and an escalating argument with the scribes, who you know are kind of the legal theologians of the time. They're arguing, and it's getting ramped up, and it's getting louder and more intense regarding the disciples' failed attempt at an exorcism. That's what the battle is over. Verse 40, I beg your disciples to cast it out. And, And again, we'll look at the Father more clearly in just a moment. But the response that creates the debate is from the Father, where he says, But they could not. That's the argument. That's the scene of life in the valley. It is a place, again, where immediately we realize we're back in the ordinary. There are demons here that are ruining this young boy's life. Here we have a great crowd and expectation that the Lord would heal and help and take away their suffering, and we have a debate that is raging over who has the authority and how to cast out demons. Now, As we move through the story now, and we understand there's contrasting spheres, and one is now going to begin graphically detailing what life is like in the ordinary. And then the spotlight's going to draw in on how do you live then in the ordinary? There is one way, and there is one way not to live in the ordinary. And the text is going to drive us toward that piece by piece. And now the exorcism itself stands at the center of the text this is what our Lord says, what is the commotion all about? My son, I brought him to the disciples to cast up the demon, and they couldn't. And then you can almost see the scene, can't you? The scribes and the Pharisees standing out, shouting out, we know why they can't. And then a debate ensues. And then the disciples standing there defensively saying, Uh, I don't know why we can't, but nonetheless, we can, And, and you can see a debate raging about how this was supposed to occur. Nonetheless, everybody agrees centrally with the father. He's standing here with his son and saying, I begged them to do it, and I don't care who is right, them or them. At this point in time, no one could do it. So now, the focus drives in on the exorcism itself. This will be the vehicle that our Lord in great compassion and brilliance drives home life in the valley and how it's supposed to be lived. So it's much more than a single moment of relieving this young boy of a demon. It is communicating what life is, how life is supposed to be lived in the valley experience for everybody who's watching the exorcism. Notice how our Lord then uses the exorcism. There is an important note as well as we move forward. As I mentioned to you, it isn't just the way that Jesus is going to explain to the crowds, all the onlookers, or even to the boy who is demon-possessed, or simply to the father, how life is to be lived. But rather, importantly, our Lord is going to show even the disciples how life is to be lived in the valley experience. I'm putting forward one more question to you as we move forward in the text. How is it, as you read the text with me, how is it that one comes out from the chaotic experience of the valley and into the inexpressible experience of the mountain? Notice how we see the explanation first being told with the teenage boy who is demon-possessed, our Lord, in his tremendous compassion and brilliance, using this episode to instruct us all. Look at verse 38 and 39 as we join in the story now with the father and the son. And behold, a man from the crowd cried out, Teacher, I beg you, look at my son, for he is my only child. And behold, a spirit seizes him, and he suddenly cries out, It convulses him so that he foams at the mouth, and it shatters him. Excellent translation there, the word being utterly destroy and and, and break apart. The father says it shatters him and will hardly leave him. Now, the father here begins to explain that the evil spirit comes upon his son at various moments, it seems to never leave. There's always something taking place with his son. But this, the, the demon will ramp up upon the son and bring torturous attack after torturous attack upon the man's son. Try to join in the biblical text here and appreciate the very human texture. His father is desperate we'll get to that in just a moment as we see his activity. But there's a large crowd of people, a huge argument. And the father cries out over everybody. Um, and he explains life in the valley for him and his son and what it's like. You notice the father says that at certain times the boy cries out. In other words... It, you could kind of put that in terms of many people seeing the boy as irrational and utterly crazy. It just, it, it rushes upon him and it causes him to just cry out. That unsettles and unnerves everybody around. Um, none, it doesn't, we don't need to think too hard to think that will get you fairly isolated among others. It makes everyone around you nervous and the heartbreak that that brings to the Father. He then goes on in Mark's gospel, describes the same demonic experience. He adds another tone to the torture. And Mark says that the demon makes the boy totally mute and deaf. Again, think of the Father. As he comes, the tortured experience of the son. One day you're coherent. One day your father is talking with you. One day, as your father, your son is talking back. And yet, it seems as the father describes, the demon never seems to leave him alone. He's always lurking. And I'll come back and be with my son, and my son will go mute. He cannot speak, he cannot utter words. He cannot even hear me utter words to him. Matthew goes on to describe it also to fill in our understanding of the description of the young boy as the father would give it in Matthew's gospel. He writes that the son is epileptic, he suffers seizures due to the demon. He gives the, 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 the uh, symptom that belongs to that kind of epilepsy, that, that sense of being seized and shaking about. He foams at the mouth, Is recorded in, in Matthew. Now, Matthew describes it in the gravest terms between the, the synoptics. You have Luke here, who, who is rather brief. You have Mark, and you have Matthew. And Matthew gives what is the absolute worst picture when we think about life lived in the valley we're a long ways now in the text. Though we're only removed by one or two verses, we're a universe away from the mountaintop experience. Matthew describes the activity of the demons down here in life in the ordinary as casting my son into burning fires. Then he goes on to describe that the boy is randomly cast into wells of water. Now think of it, how exactly life was lived between the father and the son, we don't exactly know, but the father bore witness to the torturous attack after torturous attack of his young boy. Imagine again, one day, maybe you've witnessed that with a loved one, or you've had those experiences with someone who is older and you're caring for them, they're there, they're there with you, and then the next time they're not, And, and it can almost be within a stretch of 10 minutes, or even less, moment to moment and here the father you 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 can just experience his burden you leave your son and then you come back and he's burned what happened and someone tells you he was thrown into the fire of his own volition he cast himself into the fire and is burned the father is utterly broken here and the desperation pours through the text in fact, Mark and Matthew say that the crowd came running to Jesus. Well, if they came running to Jesus, and that is the movement of the crowd, as they're descending into life in the valley, and those who live in the ordinary seek out Jesus, then that means that there's even greater effort on the Father's part to drag his son through that crowd who all wanted to be in front row and bring him through and be heard over a loud argument in a chaotic scene. He himself was heard, and his son was dragged into the presence of a Lord the urgency and desperation of a father to see healing for his son. Now, we know that it's not a younger boy like kind of a, a toddler or something that we would say in primary or elementary. There's a very good chance that this this son of his is somewhere probably in his mid-teens. Now, um how, how do we see that? Mark 9.21 fills out um, our Lord's response initially to uh, what's taking place in the description. Before verse 41 in Luke says the Lord's rebuke. But before that in Mark we see the Lord respond this, um, respond this way as he turns toward the Father. Or uh, he says, Mark in 9.21 says, Jesus asked his Father, how long has this been happening to him? Um, and the father said, from childhood. So, so this has been happening for, for quite some time. The, the description, by the way, that was given, if you put Mark, Luke, and Matthew together in the description, this is the worst case uh, 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 of, of brokenness and physical uh, destruction that occurs in the New Testament. Um, this kid is devastated and so is his father. So again, it's been happening for some duration of time. It's been happening since he was a little boy. This adds in our text to his plea for our Lord to show compassion. Notice in verse 38, where at the very end, as, as, as he cries out, right, and then he's begging Jesus, and then he adds the grounds for why I'm begging you to help me here. For he is my only child. This is all I have. And he's been like this since he was a child. Once again, getting back to the way these stories are told. Luke has a knack for presenting our Lord's compassion. He he frames it in such a way as the compassion of Christ is so easily seen that we don't simply move to like awe in capabilities. He healed him. But we see the texture of the compassion that moves him to heal human suffering. Out of three cases here so far in Luke's gospel, Three cases of healing. One that is unique to Luke, you recall, it's the widow of Nain. Pastor Dan was able to preach that text. It's located in chapter 7. And in that text, the widow, Luke adds in there th- this sense of raising this one from the dead. He Luke adds in there, it was her only son. Then, then you move from, the, there's two more healings that take place in Luke, there was, there was, in case I forget, there's the daughter of Jairus. You recall that what we looked at even last week, the raising of the young teenage girl. Um, th- that story is shared between Luke, Matthew, and Mark, and Luke is the only one to note it was his only daughter. And here as well, in the same parallel situation of the demon-possessed individual, Luke is the only one to note that the father made a remark about him being his only child. There is no reason to include that statement and to note it so carefully each and every miracle, but to display the compassion that our Lord shows toward this man's family. It is all I have In fact, Mark, in his story in verse 22, depicts the father coming to Jesus. And the father says, quote, have compassion on us. And then he goes on to say, and help us. Do you you see the picture? It isn't the father bringing the son that he kind of doesn't care for. He sees it in solidarity that I've been living like this with my only child for years. Have compassion on who? Us. Help us. I come and I care for him every day. I'm with him. I love him. But sometimes I can't even hear him. Sometimes he can't hear me. Sometimes I find him totally broken and shattered. This demon picks him and shatters him. Come and have compassion not just on him, but, but, but we're the same in this experience and life in the valley. Have compassion on us and help us. Look further at the Father's desperation as it builds through the text as our Lord so, compassionate, so compassionately looks upon him. Look at verse 40 as we describe the Father's exhaustion. Verse 40 says, and I begged your disciples, to cast it out. But they could not. Now, just track the Father's exasperation beginning in 38, as I've noted for you. He cried out. Look at the language. He cried out already. Then he says, I beg. Then he explains, it's all I have. And then he says, "This." how I'm speaking to you, in verse 40, he says, how I'm speaking to you is how I spoke to your disciples. I begged them before I begged you. Please cast this demon out now the reason for the father's added exhaustion by the time he sees jesus coming down from the mountain is because he had already as he says in verse 40 taken him to your disciples i've already taken him to them and they could do nothing for him now if you look up in verse um verse uh, chapter 9 verse 1 earlier you remember this text that we looked at quite some time ago but notice should the father have had the rightful expectation that the disciples could have acted because that sends the spotlight on the contrasting behaviors of the father and the disciples is this unfair in other words that the father is indicting the disciples or indeed should the disciples be ashamed well, look earlier in the text of chapter 9, and he called the twelve together, and he gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. Now, by the time you get down into verse 7 of chapter 9, now, Herod the Tetrarch heard about all that was happening, and he was perplexed. So, in other words... The apostles and the power of the Lord, through faith, were acting to cast out demons and heal people's ailments. This rumor mill was spreading, clearly to where the text notes, even Herod himself had heard about what was being spread throughout the villages, about the power of Christ fleshed out in the ministry of the disciples. He was perplexed by it. So the father in this episode, as he comes forward with his desperate plea and his son, he says, I'm begging you to heal them. I've begged them before you got here, and they could not. You see, he had the right and fair expectation that the disciples could have done it. And there is a problem here. That, of course, perhaps is the argumentation that the scribes are using against the disciples, and then the disciples defending themselves. Thus, there is an eruption in the crowd, and a great debate ensues. To where our Lord shows up and says, What's going on here? I begged your disciples to help them, and they couldn't. This is what draws our attention then to the question of the disciples why couldn't they? When you're facing life in the valley or you're facing life in the ordinary, where we all exist, how are you supposed to act? How are you supposed to live in the ordinary? This is the question that's now posed to the disciples as our Lord turns to them and you notice his response to their inability. Verse 41, Jesus answered them, Oh, faithless. Th- that, that's the key word of the text. Oh, faithless and twisted generation. How long am I to be with you and put up with you? And he turns to the father and says, bring your son over here to me. You see, Jesus rebukes not the crowd that's looking on. Not the Father. But the disciples. Because you see, he didn't give them power over some demons. But this one is, as we know, as described by Matthew, Mark, and Luke, it's way too intense. It's way too over the top. This one is just not going to get out of here. Not on our account. No, no, no. He gave them power, as you see, and, and, and Matthew says the same. He gave them power over all demons. So what's going on here? So he rebukes his disciples for their inactivity and their inability to drive this demon out. In fact, Mark 9, 29 explains the conversation that the disciples, a little bit after, ask Jesus, hey, why aren't we able to cast that demon out? And our Lord explains the only way that that demon is cast out is by prayer. do you see what's happening? How we live life in the valley? How when we're up against seemingly impossible odds? What our mode of operation is supposed to be? The only way that you overcome that is by prayer. Matthew goes on to describe it in chapter 17, verse 20, as our Lord responds... By faith is how these demons are cast out. Do you see? Those two things work together by prayer, or as Matthew recalls, by faith. That's how you live, that's how you act in the ordinary. By faith, through prayer. That is what life in the valley is all about. Facing sin and trouble and burden requires a response of faith and prayer. Filling in this perspective that is so not what the disciples were doing, one author writes this, quote, how arrogant and how clueless the disciples were about their inadequacy. See, now, before I finish, put yourselves in the place of the disciples. Put yourself in the place of the ordinary, right where you are, and see that this comment goes well beyond just the disciples as a faithless generation. It applies to everyone living life in the ordinary. How arrogant and how clueless they were about their inadequacy to deal with evil and suffering in the world. The disciples tried a prayerless exorcism for the same reason they still couldn't understand why Jesus had to die they didn't see how weak and how proud they really were they ultimately underestimated the power of evil both in the world and in themselves but in great contrast we see life lived in the ordinary through the eyes of the Father. Turn, if you will, just in close, because Mark seems to flesh this perspective out a little fuller. Turn, if you would, in close to Mark 9, where we can see the whole story in great contrast as the spotlight is turned upon the Father, in contrast to the disciples' as those of a twisted and faithless perspective. The contrast then arises in the Father of Mark 9, beginning in verse 22 is where I want to start, in close, so that each of us will put our place in the context of disciples and the Father and prayerfully consider how are we living life in the ordinary Are we living it in such a way as to have the hope and joy of the future glory that helps us transcend present difficulty and circumstance? Or are we naive about the difficulty of circumstance we simply think we can, in our own ability, act and change it all? Which sphere? Look in close, verse 22 And it has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe. Help my unbelief. Let's pray. Father, I ask that you would bless the reading and the preaching of your word both to my own soul as I would share it with others who are gathered here. Redeemer, you would bless it to them as well. Lord, that we would see that life lived isn't always a life on the mountaintop experience. But that blessed hope has been given us that we would dwell upon that future glory and that that would shape how we handle difficulty in the valley, in the immediate, in the distresses of life, in the challenges and hardships we face. Oh God, our faith is so frail and our endurance is so weak. We do believe as your people Help our unbelief, our inadequacy. Refresh us through your word, nourish our faith, and let us rest upon you as you are so freely offered to us in the gospel time and time again. In Christ's name we pray, amen.